you, praise team, and holy is our God, right? And there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. I want you all to help me a little bit this morning as we begin. One of the more popular forms of entertainment on television today is called reality TV. So I want you to help me identify the programs. Come on now. Ah, Amazing Race. Man, they got this right away at 9.30. I don't know about that. How about this one? Yeah, I, I, I chose this picture because I thought it really looked good, but then I find everybody knows who it is. Yeah, it's American Idol. How about this one? Well, that's the first answer, and I guess this guy's part of that too, but the program is Kitchen Nightmares. How about this? Again, 9.30 got this just like that. You see, this is Mrs. Obama in the center, and she invited them. But this is The Biggest Loser. Oh, how about that? Lunch, I don't think so, Ace. You never want to disrespect your host or hostess, but I think if somebody put that in front of me, I'd have to decline. Worst cooks in America. I have no idea what that was. How about this one? Lizard Lick Towing, yes. The commercial for this has got to be one of my favorites. I think it's the guy on the left. He says there, you're going to love it more than a fat tick likes a lazy dog. Well, the truth is, guys, these shows supposedly present unscripted, dramatic, or humorous situations, and they usually feature just normal, everyday people instead of professional actors and actresses. The programs are very adept at utilizing sensationalism to attract viewers and, of course, up the advertising revenue. But I'm confident that most of you understand that reality TV is about as real as professional wrestling. I hope I haven't burst some bubbles around here. Because the truth is that it is directed, it is massaged, it is scripted, it is shaped, but still selling the promise that we're going to be seeing something that's totally unplanned, totally unscripted, a moment that is pure and honest, it's designed to bring about some reaction in us, to make us feel happy or sad or exhilarated or angry or, or something or, or anything. The, dic- the dictionary tells us that the word real or reality refers to something existing or happening as in fact, something that is authentic or genuine. I want to spend just a couple minutes this morning looking at the reality life in this world that we live in. Interviews based, studies based on interviews with a number of children have shown that 8% of third graders, third graders, said they had intentionally hurt themselves by cutting, burning, picking their skin, hitting themselves, or some other means or method. Our governor and the legislature in Tallahassee and the feds are circling the political ring right now as the state of Florida has decided it's time to purge from the voter rolls people who are not citizens who are registered to vote. And, of course, the ACLU has chimed in claiming it's illegal to check on the legal status of the voters. A new survey released by the Federal Reserve found that today's median family income, when adjusted for inflation and before taxes, is no better than it was in 1992, hence the shrinking dollar. 
A young man from West Virginia hitchhiking across America, he's writing a book entitled Kindness in America, was shot in Montana by some people he thought were stopping to give him a ride. This is an all-too-familiar sign here in South Florida. The statistics tell us that last month, the month of May, foreclosures in the South Broward area rose by 11%, and they expect these year-over-year increases to continue throughout 2012. And finally, but not least, the U.S. Pentagon has decided that it's time to have Gay Pride Month. And so they've designated June as Gay Pride Month for the military. And they've rationalized this by saying, well, we have done this and celebrated racial and ethnic groups, so we're going to recognize the gays. Now I want to switch my focus to the world around us. Because of our uh, communication ability and technology, because of our travel abilities, And all the things that go on in the business world, the world has literally shrunk down. And we're now very much a part of a global village. And as a result of that, things that happen in far places of the world, perhaps in places we'll never even go, have a direct impact on us in many ways. The United States recently accused the Syrian government of, quote-unquote, some new horrific tactics. As UN observers have seen the Syrian troops firing on areas that are heavily populated with civilians. The civilian casualties have brought in the increase, and as a result of the escalation of violence, the U.N. has pulled out their Syria mission. A couple weeks ago, there was a number of bombs set off in Iraq, and tens of people died as the, um, the biggest day of violence since the U.S. troops were pulled out in December. This is a picture of Mexican police who are generally feared by the population. There was a video released last week that showed a group of heavily armed policemen going into a hotel in western Mexico pre-dawn. Shortly thereafter, they march out three men in handcuffs in only their underwear. The only thing about it was that the whole operation was not arranged by law enforcement authorities. These policemen were under the direction of a criminal cartel. And three hours later, all three men were found dead, asphyxiated, and beaten to death. The chief of Russia's state-controlled arms exporter said Friday that his company was going to continue to ship advanced missile defense systems to Syria that could be used to shoot down airplanes or sink warships if the United States or any other Western power decided to intervene in Syria's spiral of violence. A recent report came out in the Boston Globe about the struggles of the euro, and the questions have grown more urgent since the release of data showing a record high rate of unemployment in the Eurozone, poor job creation here in the United States, and a manufacturing slowdown in China. So this has resulted in fears that we're facing a second global recession. So with these fears mounting about the Euro's future, Mariano Rajoy of Spain, who is uh, one of their finance ministers, said this, we need to have a common fiscal authority. Someone who will come in and synchronize our budgets and manage the debts. I'm sure many of you realize that all this is doing is paving the way for the Antichrist, who will initially come in as a politician with promises of, I can stabilize the government, I can meet your needs, I can facilitate the economy, and people are going to fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. This is an aerial shot of a Korean labor camp. We've identified at least six of these in North Korea, and according to best estimates, there are some 200,000 
North Koreans imprisoned in these camps, many of them Christians who were there for one reason and one reason only, and that is their Christian faith. Two in particular, one known as Camp 14, is known what they call a complete controlled district, which simply means that all the people in that camp are there till they die. Camp 22, which is about the size of the city of Los Angeles, and estimates also that there's some 50,000 people there, and they believe that Camp 22 conducts experiments on these human beings, using them as guinea pigs. Now understand that the average sentence in a Korean labor camp is 15 years, but the average life expectancy is only seven years. Some 1.4 billion people in the world today live on one dollar or less. Another 1.4 billion live on two dollars or less every single day. That's all the money I have in my pocket right now, but got a debit card and a credit card, so lunch is no problem. But for these people, it is a huge problem. According to UNICEF, 22,000 children die every single day as a result of poverty. And they die quietly in some of the poorest villages on the earth, far, far removed from the scrutiny and the conscience of the world around them. Nearly one billion people entered the 21st century not being able to read or sign their name. Some 1.1 billion people in developing countries living in slums such as this have inadequate access to water, and some 2.6 billion lack adequate sanitation. And let me focus just for a moment on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. The persecution of Christians is most definitely on the increase around the globe. But what doesn't appear to be matching that increase is concern in the media and even at times in Christian circles. Sadly, it seems like this is just old news. The unjust suffering of people whose only crime is the fact that they have trusted Christ as their Savior and want to worship and do just what we are doing in the comfort of this auditorium this morning. Maybe it lacks the entertainment value of the reality programs, or maybe there just isn't any direct impact on the bubble of our own reality. Or maybe a lot of people are just too worn and too pressured and too tired to care. Many of you have heard of and prayed for an Iranian pastor named Yusef Nadakarni. He has been sentenced by the Iranian government to die for the crime of being a Christian and preaching the word. But recently it was revealed that his main defense attorney has been sentenced to nine years in prison, supposedly for acting against national security. The truth is it's because he's defending Pastor Youssef and other Christians like him who have been unjustly accused by the government and they don't have any money for their defense. In Orissa, India, a scene that is re repeated, unfortunately, all around, India, all around India, 50 Hindu ultranationalists attacked a pastor and 12 families in his prayer group. 20 people were injured, homes were looted, some were destroyed, many families had to flee the village. In Nigeria, an Islamic extremist group has targeted and killed, by their recollection, a minimum of 200 Christians in this year alone. In Indonesia, at least 22 churches have been forced to close by the government. In Laos, a young Camus woman is being persecuted by her family because she's trusted Christ as Savior. They burned her Bible. They burned her hymn book. They forbade her to go to church. They even threatened death if she did not recant her faith. 
And unfortunately, in many of these third world countries, Islamic countries, almost every day it seems another church get bombed. This, my brothers and sisters, is a picture of real life and the reality of life for the world in which we live. Now, notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy. You should also know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and have no interest in what's good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. And they'll act as if they are religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. They'll put on a good show on the outside, but there's no truth, there's no substance whatsoever to what you really see. Now, some of you are probably thinking, you know, Pastor Bob, I didn't brave the rain and come to church this morning for you to get me all depressed. And let me assure you, that is not my intention this morning. But this is a picture of the reality of the world that we live in. And I say to us all that we cannot, we must not ignore or turn our backs on this reality. Now, doubtless, some of you are thinking, what can I do? I can't change the world. Stories told of a man who had been very faithful in his service to God. He was very giving, compassionate, gave much of his time, his talents, and his abilities. Lived in the city of San Francisco. One day, he was out walking on the beach, and God came to him and said, son, I've seen your faithfulness. I have seen all that you've done for the least of these, and so I've decided to grant you one request. The young man was shocked, and he had to think about it for a few minutes, and finally he said, well, Lord, I want you to build me a bridge from here to Hawaii. Think of all of the traffic it'll take and, and all the things that can be improved on and sped up, And I can collect tolls at both ends and give most of that money to missions. God answered him and said, I don't know. Think about all the concrete and all the steel that's going to take. Think of the labor costs and all the time and the danger to the laborers going all the way across the Pacific. Uh, That's not too realistic. Pick something that's a little bit more realistic. Finally, he said, All right, then, I want you to make me understand completely the mind of a woman. I want to know why she thinks the way she thinks, why she acts the way she does, why she reacts the way that she does, and I want to understand it completely. There was a pause, and God answered, you want that two lanes or four lanes? (laughs) Now, Maybe you and I cannot change the world directly, but I submit to us all that we can change ourselves, and then we can have an impact on our families and in our communities and the people that we interact with. You see, the Bible says that's what it's all about. God hasn't caused all these problems. The majority of them have been caused by many of the things that Timothy mentioned there in that passage, or that Paul mentioned to Timothy. Greed and hatred, people are unforgiving, people want what's only they think best for themselves. And God does not micromanage our lives and our choices. But the reality is that God is God. 
that he already knew long before it happened, all these things that are going to happen. That's how I could write the book of Revelation. And so God has the answers that we need. So I believe it makes perfect sense that we look into the Word of God and see what God has for us. And so number one, I believe that God's answer for life struggles is that you and I develop a stronger faith. Now, this might seem like I'm preaching to the choir. But pastor, we're, most everyone here is a Christian. We've already made this commitment. I understand that. But I submit to us all that we can strengthen our resolve and strengthen our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, he's not saying work for but work out. Think of going to the gym and, and pumping iron. You put a stress load on your muscles and it, it breaks down the muscle tissue and makes it stronger. Now let me also share with you that the truth is that any number of polls will tell you that somewhere between 89 and 94% of Americans believe in God. But the question that you and I must ask of them is, which God is it that you believe in? Because the sad truth is oftentimes it is not Jehovah God of the Bible. You see, the truth is that America today is a pluralistic nation. That simply means that the prevailing philosophy is that all religious philosophies and all life philosophies all have the same equal value. And many of these religious philosophies simply say that any road will get that person to heaven so long as they are sincere in what they believe. A few years ago, a Catholic woman wrote a letter to Ann Landers. You remember Ann Landers, the famous columnist? In the letter, she shared, My husband and I are Catholic. But several years ago, our two older children joined a fundamentalist movement. And then more recently, her middle son, her daughter-in-law, and their grandchild got involved in this same church. And they really started putting the pressure on mom and dad. And so she writes to Ann Landers and she says this, What does it mean to be born again? As faithful Catholics, we feel secure in our relationship with the Lord. Ann Landers in her answer said this, I have no quarrel with people who are sincere in their beliefs, but it is unfair of your children to try to proselytize you. A kind and generous God has room in heaven For a wide variety of believers, including those who have only been born once. As faithful Catholics, your credentials are just as good as theirs to pass through the pearly gates. And as a Jew, I hope to make it too. After all, his son was one. Now you know, sadly, a lot of churches in America are being overrun with people who feel that God will let them into heaven simply because... They're a good person. And basically all religious roads are eventually going to get that person to heaven. Let me share with you, for those of you who might be wondering about this this morning, that God's word is extremely clear. Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, by the willfully disobedient choices I've made, I have created this gulf between me and God. And no matter how much I try, no matter how much I read the Bible, go to church, 
do good things, put money in the offering plate, none of those good works will ever bridge this gulf that I myself have created. Paul ends Romans 6.23 by saying, but God's gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, God sent his only son to die on the cross and pay for all of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible declares, God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for you and I, that we then could be made righteous in and through him. So God extends the gift of his son and says, all you have to do is accept my son, believing that when he died on the cross, he died and paid for your sins. In doing that, God guarantees to save you. Then you can claim the promise in 1 John 5, 13, where the Bible says, these things have I written to those of you, all of you, who believe on the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, not guess, not wish. You can be absolutely certain. Now, please understand, and what we're talking about this morning, there's lots more to the Christian life. But that all happens after I trust Christ as my Savior, after God adopts me as a child, after I am indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Now, as we work very hard at strengthening our faith, then we'll be better prepared to be a beacon of light to a very, very dark world. Then no matter how difficult things may become in our personal life, we can be a tower of strength for many because we're keeping our eyes focused on God. We're allowing God to guide and direct us. And so I say to you all that I believe very firmly that the key to this whole situation is the object of our faith. The key is the object of our faith. Again, the sad reality is that for many people, the object of their faith is their church, their church attendance, their church membership, their denominational affiliation, the things that they do, the ways that they serve, and all the busy things they're involved in. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Pastor Rusty mentioned earlier about plenty of opportunities for volunteers to help with the upcoming barbecue kickball. Miss Carol was really appreciative of everybody who volunteered and helped last week in VBS. I've mentioned probably most every time I speak that the foundational principles and verses of this ministry is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of your works, lest any man should boast. But even there, Paul's reminding the church, guys, this is how it all started for you because his focus really is verse 10, that we Christians are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do these good works. Not so I can be saved, not so I can earn merit points or brownie points with God, but so that I am fulfilling my responsibility as a child of God, that I am allowing God to work in and through me to accomplish great things for the kingdom. And let me say the only, the only object of a biblical faith is and must always be the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Galatians 2.16. Paul says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ, not because we've obeyed the law, not because I've done things. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. And in Philippians he says, I once thought all these things were so very important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. When you read the context, the preceding verses, Paul talks about a lot of his accomplishments. He was basically a Jew of Jews. He was way up there. But he says, I once thought all these things were so very important, but I now consider them worthless. 
Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. As a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. The moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, no matter what your life was like, no matter what the age you may have been, the moment you trusted Christ as Savior, God the Holy Spirit came to indwell you, and God then filled you with power. Now, it's our obedience to God that activates this power. And then in John 14, 6, a verse that many of you are familiar, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. All roads do not lead to heaven. There is one way, one way only. Now, the world claims you Christians are are stuck up. You Christians are narrow-minded and bigoted because you say there's only one way. Well, God makes it very clear. Matthew talks about the narrow road. But you see, the one thing that sets us apart is that narrow road. Yes, it's very narrow because Jesus is the only way. But that very narrow road is open to everyone. Regardless of age or race or ethnicity, it doesn't make any difference. It's, op- it's open to everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4, the Bible says that God's will is that everyone would come to know Christ as Savior. The problem is the road to destruction is wide. There's lots of temptations and lots of trials. Now, I want you to understand something also this morning. I'm not sharing this with you. I'm not saying this because I'm supposed to. You know, I'm a pastor, and I believe in the Bible, and I I really should say that so people won't think I'm a heretic or question me and and, uh, kick me out of the church. I'm not saying this because I believe it, though I do, with all my heart. I know I have experienced, I have seen it in my life and in my family and the lives of people that I've talked with and counseled with and ministered to and with over the years. But I want you to understand I'm saying this because it's true. Because God's word declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in John chapter 13 and John chapter 14, let me give you a little background here. Jesus is trying to calm down his disciples. They had been on kind of a roller coaster lately. In John chapter 11, uh, They got the word that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was sick. Right away, the disciples are telling, Lord, we can't go there. They already tried to kill you once. They've made it very plain. If we show our faces in Bethany, but Jesus is insistent, and so they go. They experience and they witness Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They were probably like most everybody there. They were just, they were amazed. They were awestruck by all of the events that happened. So while they're on that high, that spiritual mountaintop, they learn about a plot by the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus. So now they'll have to go and all go in hiding. So they've been on this roller coaster up and down. And so Jesus is trying to calm them. They'd been part of the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem and people laid down their cloaks and threw down palm branches and made his entrance like that of a king. The Passover celebration's right around the corner And Jesus had joined them for the evening meal. In chapter 13, Jesus said this to them. I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, as you can imagine, this kind of surprised them. 
and as was his nature and personality, Peter's the one that speaks up first. He was confused and perhaps a little exasperated by this time. Uh, Jesus had mentioned this again before publicly. The Jews probably thought, what is this guy going to commit suicide or whatever? The disciples were probably a little bit confused. And so now, in the intimacy of their private circle, as they're getting ready to have dinner, Jesus says to them, and now they're really confused. Peter is impatient. He vows to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to lay down my life for you. Of course, Jesus, being God, knew of Peter's weakness, and he said very gently to him, Peter, you don't understand. Before the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, Peter didn't have any reason, and I don't believe that he, he doubted Jesus' authority or his knowledge. But again, he was mystified because he just could not see that that would happen. He says, Lord, I, I just can't see me failing that way. And so in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus adds to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And they're all probably thinking, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You've not been in through and experienced this roller coaster that we're on, Jesus. You don't know how we're struggling with all of this. The way that Jesus phrases this implies that he's saying to them, guys, stop being troubled. That they should set their minds at ease, and he urges them. He says, you trust in God, trust also in me. So in spite of the threatening circumstances, Jesus speaks very calmly about his divine provision for them. He spoke as one who was just as familiar with eternity as you and I are familiar with the church here and the neighborhood that we live in and all the places that we shop and all the places that we go regularly. The word rooms there comes from a a term in the Oriental culture where often the sons and the daughters had rooms there with their parents and where they had that comfort and that solidarity. In verse 3, although he doesn't elaborate on the promise, the guarantee is unmistakable. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will return. So in verse 5, Thomas chimes in. Now again, Thomas has kind of gotten a, a bum rap over the years. You know, every, most everybody calls him Doubting Thomas. Because the first time Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, Thomas wasn't there. When he heard the great news, he said, uh-uh. Not until I can put my hand in the hole in his side or see the holes in his feet or the holes in his hand... I won't believe it. So he's kind of gotten a bad rap. But the truth is, in John chapter 11, when it was clear that Jesus was determined to go to Bethany, Thomas basically said, all right, guys, Jesus is going to go die. Let's go with him. But he was a pessimist. I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, Winnie the Pooh. And in the Winnie the Pooh circle, Thomas would be Eeyore. Okay? He sees the dark side of everything. And yet even now... Thomas voiced not just his despair, because at times he was confused by life. He was confused about all the curveballs that we get thrown in life. But at the same time, he wasn't ready to throw in the towel and give up. And so again, in verse 6, Jesus replied to them, guys, I am the way, the truth, the life. I want to look at a couple of aspects of that that I believe are very important to us. First of all, it's very personal. Jesus doesn't claim to just know the way the truth, and the life. It wasn't some formula that he could teach to people. Okay? If you need directions to a restaurant for lunch after church, I can help you out. Okay? I could give you some formulas to to help you with a lot of different things. But Jesus is saying to me, guys, I am not some formula. 
He claimed to be the answer to all of our problems. And understand that Jesus' answer is never a, a system, it's never a formula, it's all about having a personal relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, may I share something with you this morning? You cannot build a personal relationship with someone that you interact with only on Sunday mornings. God wants to have a deeply personal relationship with each and every one of us. That needs to be 24-7. Everything in our life needs to have as its focus our Savior, Jesus Christ, what He has done for us and what His expectations are of us. Secondly is that Jesus Christ is the only way to God because only He has an intimate knowledge of God that is totally unmarred by sin. Now see, for you and I, all of our viewing of God, our ideas about God, are distorted by our sin, our sinful tendencies, the sins that we have committed, those that we're trying to hide, the world around us, the culture around us, the ideas that are around us, all of these things color and to some degree distort our view of God. But, but Jesus' view and what he presents to us is totally and completely unmarred. He is the truth because he has the perfect power of making life one coherent experience, no matter what the ups and downs were. Remember, I told you the disciples had just been on this spiritual roller coaster. And for many of you, I know that your life feels like that, that it feels like every time you turn around, something else is coming at you that was totally unexpected and you weren't prepared for it. When Jesus calls himself the truth, he wasn't just saying that he represents the standards and the rules that we should try to live by. Instead, he wants us to understand that he is the embodiment and the essence of truth, that truth begins with Jesus and it continues with him and it ends with him. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, what that means is simply, I believe, that no matter what the question is, the answer is always Jesus. The word for life in the Greek is an abstract term that describes the very life force itself, the vital principle that, that animates our life and gives us the ability to live. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I'm going to give you life and life more abundantly. Now, he had in view eternity and eternal life, and, and that's a great thing. I praise God all the time that I can be certain of my eternal life, not because of who or what I am or what I've done, but because of the fact that I had the good sense to accept Christ as my Savior. But he's also talking about a quality of life here and now, that no matter what the storms are that are swirling all around us, no matter what unexpectedly comes our way, that we can be at peace. We can be calm. He is the life because he's not subject to death. Jesus Christ conquered death. And because he is the way, the truth, and the life, he's the only way to the Father. So regardless of the choices that many of us make, the truth is Jesus is not some or part or most of anything. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so as I mentioned, just a couple of things I want to focus on in closing. First of all, I believe the answer to our economic problems is Jesus. Notice Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your, what's that next word? My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. It's often a struggle here in America to distinguish between need and want. Even there, though, understand in Psalm 37.4, God says, delight yourself in the Lord, be obedient, serve me. 
Allow me to use you, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, he certainly isn't talking about every desire, because like a good parent, uh, you don't need that. That's not good for you. But he says, God will meet all of our needs according to his riches. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, notice, In all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It is God's will that we do some good things to have an impact on the world around us, to help draw people to Jesus Christ, to understand what you understand, to have the peace that you can have in spite of the fact that the world is fast going down the toilet. And guys, again, it really is not going to get a whole lot better. We may still enjoy a lot of blessings because of our country But even there, there are a lot of forces at work seeking to tear down this great country. We have to make the right choices. The answer to our relational problems, I believe, is Jesus. For those of you who are struggling in an interpersonal relationship right now, whether within your family or with a friend or a coworker, or perhaps with your spouse, again, I believe the only way to true and complete success is obedience in all that we do to God. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 22. The Pharisees came to him trying to trick him, asked him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I would never say to you that someone could not love another person if they don't know Christ as Savior, but I will say with absolute certainty that you cannot love, they cannot love, as God intended for us to love without first understanding the one who is love, the one who embodies love, the love who demonstrated love to us. In an interpersonal relationship, especially in a marriage, you know, there are a lot of factors at play. God designed men and women there to be a a physical attraction and to some degree an emotional attraction and you like the same things and all that. And it is important that we understand that God himself is love. Ladies, gentlemen, think of it this way. Think of how terrific your relationship would be if your mate was always patient with you. If his or her every act just radiated kindness. If they were never, ever jealous of your abilities or your talents or your friendships, if they were never too prideful to admit when they were wrong or had a shortcoming, if there was not a single selfish bone anywhere in their body, if they never ever got angry with you, no matter what you said or did, no matter what you lost or broke, they never got angry. If when you had an argument, They never got historical on you. If they always protected you in every single situation, and what if they never gave up no matter what? You know, sadly, the divorce rate in America today hovers around some 57%, and I submit to you that for many, and I realize there are extenuating circumstances at the time because of, again, just man's sin, but many of them are simply because They don't want to put forth the effort. They don't want to try. They don't want to allow God to heal and fix the problem. Now, it sounds great. I realize that. 
But also let me encourage you that we always have to be on our guard because Satan is always going to be looking for some way to drive a wedge in that relationship. He's going to be looking for some way to take us down. A man was sitting in his den, relaxing one afternoon, watching TV, and his wife came in and said, Honey, there's a problem with the car. There's water in the carburetor. Her husband looked up at her, puzzled look on his face. He said, Water in the carburetor? I, I, I don't think so. But she's insistent. I tell you, the car has water in the carburetor. Now he gets angry, and he's yelling at her, and he says, Listen, you don't even know what a carburetor is. If I opened the hood and asked you to point it out, you could not even tell me where the carburetor is. His wife starts getting teared up, and he's remorseful right away. Honey, I'm sorry. I'll go check it out. So he gets up, and he glances out the window, and he doesn't see the car. Honey, where's the car? (laughs) It's in the pool. I believe the answer to our sin problem is Jesus Christ. You see, the problem is, even after we trust Christ as Savior, God gives us a new nature, a sinless nature, a nature that enables us to have victory over sin. The reality is, guys, we're talking about reality life here, the reality is I still have that sin nature, that old nature. Some of the same struggles and all. One of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to paraphrase a bit. Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I have the desire to do the right thing. That's the prompting of his new nature. But I can't seem to find a way to do it. I know it's my sin nature. He's not making an excuse. You know, don't say the devil made me do it. Because that isn't true. He says, I recognize it's my sin nature. In verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And the answer in verse 25, only the Lord Jesus. But there's going to be that struggle. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul talks about Flesh wants one thing, spirit another, boom, there's a clash here. And the New Living Translation finishes that verse by saying, and your choices will never be free from this conflict. But you see, again, the moment I trusted Christ as Savior, God adopted me, the Holy Spirit came to indwell me. It's a permanent indwelling. You can't run fast enough to leave the Holy Spirit behind. Praise the Lord for that, amen? Okay. And so the Holy Spirit's going to be there, not only convicting us, but also empowering us. The truth is, when I've trusted Christ as my Savior, when I make Jesus Christ the focal point of my life, I am going to be much more aware of my sin. And that, I think, is a problem for a lot of people because it don't, you know, ignorance is bliss. But it'd be like looking in the mirror and just as clear as I see my face every morning, well, most every morning, when I'm shaving. But just as clear as I see my reflection, I'm going to see those sin. But you see, praise God, the fact is, because of my focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, Because he is the center of my life, I am much more accustomed to, much more experienced in tapping into that power that is God the Holy Spirit to have the victory. Now, not because God fails, but because I fail, I won't always have the victory. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you everything's going to be hunky-dory and all your problems are going to go away. Okay? I'm not saying that to you. What I'm simply saying is that the answer to the sin problems that we face is Jesus. Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your sinful nature, notice, God made you alive with Christ Jesus. He forgave us all of our sins. And 2 Peter 1, I love this passage. By his divine power, God has given us, what's that next word? Everything. Everything. God has given us everything we need 
for living a godly life. If you know Christ as Savior, you already have it. You may not be able to find it too easily. You may not be too adept at using it, you know, like some of us are with computers and newfangled devices and all that kind of stuff. But God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are the promises, notice, that enable us to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. That's what we're faced with day in and day out. The corruption in this world, the fact that people hate other people simply because their skin is a different color or their ethnic background is different or just because I don't like you or because I want your land or because I want to exploit you for money so I can buy all these toys that I'm going to have to leave behind anyway. This is the the corruption in the world in which we live and God promises, I can escape this corruption. In other words, I can escape not the presence of the corruption, guys. As long as we're here, it's going to be there. You're going to see it and hear about it more and more every single day. But what I can escape is the impact it can have on my life. What I can escape is the power that it holds over me because it's all about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And last, the answer to the weight of all of our worries is Jesus. Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Doesn't say I'll take all your problems away. In fact, in John 16, he says, guys, I'm going to give you my peace, but in the world, you're going to have tough times. Take my yoke upon you, and notice, learn from me. The more that we learn, the more that we grow, the more experienced we are, the better we're able to handle the problems that are going to be there. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxiety, cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. He warns us, Watch out for the devil. He says, resist him by standing firm in your faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. The word in the Greek translated here in this version, cast, literally means to dump. God says, come, dump it all on me. Leave it with me. You're going to have to deal with it. But I'll be there providing the strength, the wisdom, and the guidance. When we make Jesus Christ the focus of our lives, when we apply the principles of John 14, 6 on a daily basis. And I believe that we'll be more caring. We'll be more generous in our giving. We'll understand so much more of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he encourages the people not to worry that God knows our needs and would provide just as he makes beautiful flowers and trees and just as he provides for the birds. When I make Jesus Christ the focal point of my life, I'm going to be more compassionate. I'm going to be more understanding in all of my relationships, in my marriage and in my family, my relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, my relationships with people I work with that are difficult to deal with and understand. Because I am going to be more compassionate. I'm going to be more understanding. doesn't say I'm going to have to be accepting of their sinful behavior but I can deal with me a whole lot better, which enables me then to pray for them, which enables me to be a tool that God can use to change the world around me. When I've got Christ in my focus and that principle in John 14, again, I'll be more conscious of my sins, but I'm going to be absolutely confident that in Christ I can have the victory. And though the problems are not just going to all go away, 
when I've got Christ as a focus in my life. I'm not going to be crushed under the concern and the fear that consumes so many people in this world today. Because I know that God is able. And my confidence and my comfort is completely in Him. It's all about how I allow God to deal with me and my life. Again, Jesus said to us all, Guys, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to come to the Father through me. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to provide an opportunity here for someone, maybe you're a guest this morning, first time, maybe you've been here before, but you don't really understand what it is to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. So let me reiterate to you what the Bible clearly and simply says. God knows, certainly he knows, that we're all sinners. The result of the willfully disobedient choices we make is that we'll be separated from God. But it doesn't end there because God, in his grace and his mercy, the word grace, charis, literally means undeserved mercy or favor. Because of God's love, he offers a gift. That gift is his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and completely paid the penalty for all of our sins, completely wiped it out. And he offers salvation, eternal life as a gift. All you have to do is accept it. You know how to accept a gift. Someone offers it in love and tenderness and compassion, you accept it, it's yours. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and as I do, my encouragement to you would be to reach out to the Lord. And perhaps just something like this. God, I I really don't understand all this, but I do know that I'm a sinner. I do want to have this gift of eternal life and a quality of life that you offer. And so I will accept the gift of your son, believing the record of the Bible, that when he died on the cross, he died and paid for my sins. God guarantees that he'll save you right where you sit. As I mentioned earlier, there's lots more to the Christian life. But it's because I am a child of God by faith, in trusting Christ as Savior and not to earn or curry God's favor. Again, prayer is just talking to God. Just talk to God in your own words. Yes, Lord, I'll accept the gift. I'll accept your son, believing he died for my, my sins. Why not take God at his word? He loves you so very much. Want you to be part of the family. Father, I thank you for this time that we have shared together this morning, a time of worship and fellowship, celebration. Lord, we've laughed a little. We've looked at the situation in the world that we live in. And I pray that no one leaves here today without being, first of all, assured of their personal relationship with you by trusting Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that those who know Christ as Savior, that we will leave here today stronger in our commitment and desire to deepen our relationship with you. Lord, that we are going to focus on Jesus and all that he means to us and all that he provides for us. And Lord, what he desires to do in and through us. 
I pray, Father, that we never forget that it's our choice, that you're not going to force us to do it. But that because of your love and all that you've done, Lord, I pray that we will respond in love, faith, and obedience. So I thank you again, Father, for this, your ministry. I pray, Father, for everyone who is a part of this church family, that we will be faithful in our giving and supporting this ministry. Lord, that we can continue to be a beacon of light and hope to a very dark world. I pray, Lord, that we never grow weary in well-doing, that we not allow the weight and the pressures of the world around us to crush us down, Lord, but that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And I thank you, Father, for all that you have done and all that you're going to do in our lives. For it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen. Let me just say, if you've made a decision this morning to trust Christ as Savior, I'd like to send you a little booklet that'll help to reinforce the decision you've made and what that means in your life. So if you haven't already, fill out that connection card in its entirety and mark your decision on the back and just drop it in one of the kiosks. I promise we will not sell your name to the telemarketer or give it out to anybody. Uh, We just want you to be certain of the decision and choice that you have made. And again, uh, do be in prayer. Uh, for Pastor John and Shane and the youth, as uh, Pastor Rusty mentioned, they left a little while ago to head up to camp. So just pray for the impact of camp and the lives of the kids this week. We do praise the Lord for the safe return of the Haiti team. We'll be hearing from them in the next couple of weeks about all that went on down there and how God blessed. And so we just thank the Lord for all that he's doing. Let's all stand. Let's have a word of prayer and uh, drive safe going home. Father, we thank you so very much again for this time that we've had to worship and fellowship together today. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. We thank you, Father, for how that plays out in our lives and how the impact enables us to truly be joyful in spite of all of the temptations and the darkness that swirls around us. Lord, I pray that we truly will be a light to those around us, allowing you to shine in and through us. Father, that we continue to grow closer to you so that through that relationship we can grow closer to each other. That in spite of the differences that there are, we can be a cohesive uh, group, Father, as we are determined to continue to share the good news of the gospel and to have the impact of the gospel on the lives of people to draw them to Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us ask that you take us home in safety, give us a good day. And I pray, Lord, that we are excited about the challenge that the world around us presents. Or it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.